revision.io. Thank you so much, everybody, for coming. Um, and sorry to everybody that I have my back to. Um, so, yeah, um, I am Emily McDonnell, and this is my colleague, Eloise Leman, and we both work for a company called Civocracy, which is a civic tech startup focused on rebuilding the relationship between government and their citizens using technology. So we help rebuild trust um, by helping local governments make decisions based on what their communities actually want. Um, we've both been working in the government space for a couple of years. I'm trying to figure out if you're waving at me or not. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so the format um, of the, the roundtable is um, obviously you guys are sat around the edge. We're going to have a conversation uh, with you guys about democracy um, and how we should be looking at updating the structures of democracy for the modern age that we're living in, especially the age of technology that we are currently in, um, because as we all know, democracy is lagging behind quite a lot. Um, so we've got some points that we'd like to make and a couple of things that we'd like to share with you. Um, and then following that, we will open up for you guys to come and join us. Um, so there are two chairs here. Um, which are chairs that are for you guys. So if at any point you would like to say something, ask us a question, please come and join us and just sit in the middle of the circle with us. Um, if the chairs are both full and you still want to, want to say something, just kind of come up and put your hand on the shoulder of the person sat down and you guys can swap oh, out. So Does that sound good? Everybody happy? Excellent. Awesome. So um, we will get started then. Um, so. Um, as we, as we know, and as I've just mentioned, the world is kind of flooded with new innovations in every single sector. Um, we see new technological advancements in the agriculture world. We see cryptocurrencies springing up to kind of replace the way that we use money. Um, but the one thing that kind of governs everything above that is democracy. And it's kind of the structure that we are all working towards and we all want to see implemented in the world. But it's something that we have been using since ancient Roman times. It's a structure that was built for an age of elites and philosophers and normal people just accepted it and got on with it. And we're still using the same representative system that we used then, except now there's universal education for the most part, there are new innovations, there are new silos with people working with different expertise, and we are still working on the same hundred year old, hundreds of years old system. Um, so what we really should be doing is looking at how we can update these, these systems using the tools that we have, and we're all responsible for doing that. We can't just let politicians sit and do it in isolation, um, because we all have knowledge to share and we all want to to have our say and as we've seen when when politicians are kind of left to their own devices there's a big trust deficit that that emerges and that is kind of being emphasized by technology at the moment um, so people can order delivery on their phone they can get food to their front front of their door but when they want to interact with their government it's a very heavy bureaucratic way of doing things and it's really difficult for them so um okay can everybody oops. Sorry, sorry, can everyone hear me now? I'm assuming that from that jump, the answer is yes. Um, brilliant. So um, what we have to think is that um, we all perceive, or for the most part, people see democracy as just voting. But democracy isn't just voting. It's, it's something that affects us every day. Um, so we need to be thinking about how we can work with it every day. Um, and the biggest, biggest, biggest issue right now, as we all know, um, there is another microphone coming at me. What is going on? Okay. Um, the biggest issue is, is the lack of trust in government. 
And when people don't feel heard, they stop trusting their government. And as we can see, there are these huge populist movements that spring up when people don't feel heard. And we look around the world now and these models of democracy that we've all been striving for have have caused this huge, huge, huge void. Um, And this void is kind of being amplified by technology. Um, And it's not that politics is kind of going backwards, it's just that it's not moving forward at the same speed as everything else. Um, So there are really positive examples of how we can begin using technology to help progress democracy. Uh, There are also some incredibly negative ones. Um, And trust is a really, really difficult thing to nurture. Um, It's very, very easy to break it. So we have to be really careful when we think about using technology to develop democracy, that we have to do it in a very, very responsible way and we're not doing it quickly to kind of boost egos or to gain power. It's something that we need to be doing to look at the future. It's not a political tool to grab power. It's something that we all should be using long-term for the future. Um, So I'm just going to give you two very quick examples. One of a a very positive use of developing technology into democracy and a very bad one. Um, So I don't know how many of you have heard of a company called Agora. Um, They're a Swiss blockchain company. um, And this year, they announced that they had done the world's first blockchain election. Now, we all know there are a lot of very bizarre applications for blockchain, but this is actually potentially a very positive one. You know, putting votes onto a very secure service, decentralizing it, means that in countries where there is higher levels of corruption, we can actually build better democracy because we can't have that corruption in it. However, Q two months later, it turns out Agora had done this as a huge PR stunt. they hadn't done the world's first blockchain election. Uh, what they had done is they had been testing their technology and they had sat in 200 uh, polling stations out of 12,000 and they had proved that they, their technology worked and that they could get the same results as doing it manually. Um, what happened, of course... <laughs> Am I back? Am I back? I really like that this is a technology conference and the technology doesn't work. Um, so, uh, so yes, yeah, so they had proved that their model worked. But um, what happened, of course, was that the world's media and the world's press kind of went up in arms. They were like, blockchain is bad. We can't use blockchain for democracy because it doesn't work and people lie and it's this really negative technology. Now, we all know that actually there are applications for it that do work and it would be great. But the work that that blockchain world is going to have to do now to rebuild trust and to prove to the kind of people not in that bubble that it's a positive thing is going to be much harder now just because they wanted to be the first people to implement blockchain and the first people to do a national blockchain election they've made it much harder for everybody else um however um there are of course positive examples i don't know how many of you know about taiwan um and audrey tang she's um perhaps the world's first um, digital minister. And she started a, she likes to call it a movement and not a political party called GovZero. Um, And it's about radical transparency. And what she's done is she's set up this party where people can go and share different codes, different technologies. It's all open source and it's all solutions for government problems. Um, And she goes out, her and her team, they go out into communities and they do offline and online work and people can all go, they put their code, they put their ideas online and the government can go through and they can cherry pick the solutions so it's kind of this really amazing thing where it's the entire nation is responsible for the government's development and everybody is empowered to feel like what they are doing matters and it's not a political movement it's not she's not associated with any kind of political party which means what she is doing is incredibly neutral 
which means that the work that is happening can be trusted because it's about building a better Taiwan. It's not about the four years that her government is in power, which obviously is really, really important. Um, so from our work that we've done with governments, there are kind of three key things that we think governments should be doing in the way that we can help build democracies to rebuild that trust. Um, and kind of three key areas that we should be looking at implementing technology. Um, so one is working local, locally, working with communities rather than on the national level. Um, one is about education and kind of providing people with the tools and training and the ability to experiment and teach people. Um, and the other is we need to have cross-sector collaboration, like I already mentioned. We can't be working in silos. Um, please come and sit down. There are chairs. Um, <laughs> sorry, I go into host mode. Um, so what I want to do is, again, kind of give you a couple of examples for each of these points um, and kind of show why we really believe that these are important things. So... With community, um, I can guarantee that all of you in this room, if you're from Berlin or from somewhere else, that is your affinity. So I live in Berlin. I love the city. It's my, it's my safe space. However, I don't feel as connected to Germany as I do to Berlin. I'm from a, a small city in the UK called Oxford. I love my community and I would love to do everything I can to kind of help build it. I could not hate the UK more at the moment for uh, some obvious reasons. Um, but... I want to work on that community level. And it's also been proven that being connected to your community and to your local government has really great health benefits. When you feel connected to your local government, your happiness index points go up by 25%. It's really, really important that we help people feel connected. Um, so one of the big things um, that we have seen is um, there's a movement in Iceland called Better Reykjavik. Um, and it's focused on the city of Reykjavik. Um, and it's a community initiative that started after the financial crash. Obviously, everyone around the world kind of lost trust in these big institutions. Uh, and Better Reykjavik, what they do is the mayor started a movement where he listed all of the priorities that he had for his city, all of the things that he wanted to work on. And he said to his citizens, you can add lists to it. You can say what else you want to do. And there's been all of these amazing things that citizens have have updated and what the mayor did is he implemented the top 10 best every term you can vote for what you agree with you can choose what you want and citizens projects actually get implemented and there's now like a 75 percent participation rate in Reykjavik from the citizens and that's unheard of in other democracies you never get that higher turnout and it's really small things from changing street names I, there's now a street name that's named after a Star Wars character but it's stuff that makes people happy and it also helps show them that when you have your say in dem democracy, then it, it's valued, it's heard, there's important stuff. But there have also been bigger projects about um, rehabilitating drug addicts and kind of these real strong things that people who live in the communities know what needs to happen, that governments don't necessarily see because they're kind of up in their ivory tower. Um, so that's why kind of working with communities is really, really, really important. Um, it's also important because um, we've seen movements, so with, with Trump and Brexit, there's been research done that the communities that didn't feel connected, that didn't feel like they were important, were the ones that voted for Trump or for Brexit. And it wasn't because they agreed with their ideology, it's because they didn't feel like they were represented. They were kind of this community off out here and they were re rejecting globalization, they were rejecting something. So by bringing these people in and showing them that their voice is, is important, they can then have their say at the table and they might, they might still have voted the way that they voted, but at least they felt heard and they felt like this is worth me doing and it's worth me being involved in democracy and actually proactively doing things rather than just rejecting what I get asked. 
Um, the next thing is kind of the, the cross-sector collaboration. Um, and the reason that we need to have this cross-sector collaboration is because, like we keep saying, democracy is lagging behind and the private sector keeps pushing. And the, uh, the private sector is pushing boundaries and pushing boundaries and pushing boundaries and it's changing the way that the world works. When government doesn't keep up, when civil society isn't as actively involved, we end up with these huge monopolies. Um, and so I was reading something earlier this week. Um, there are 2.5 billion smartphones in the world. That's a third of all people aged between 15 and 64. That means that we're kind of constantly in, in touch with whatever we're being shown. You know, we log onto our phones and the, everything flashes up, kind of all of the apps. Everything that is connected to the internet, we are shown um, adverts through. And there are two companies that own 60% of the world's advertising. It's Facebook and Google. And that's really worrying that 60% is owned by two companies and they're not being regulated by policy. Citizens, obviously, we all have pushbacks against these companies. We all have our issues with them. But we don't have a say in it because these private companies have kind of run off. So rather than rejecting these companies and saying, you're doing this and we don't like what you're doing, we need to be bringing them into these conversations and kind of saying, all right, what you're doing is really awesome. We want to cherry pick this. We want to pick this. And, but we want to shape it in this way. We can't just let them have these monopolies. It doesn't work. And I know all of you know the statistics about Facebook's impact on, on elections, but it's really worrying when you look at it as a list. Really, really worrying. So the first election that Facebook meddled in was in 2014 in India. It was their national elections, uh, and they helped a far-right Hindu party get into power, um, kind of through uh, Facebook groups and allowing hate speech to appear and kind of being pushed out, and because the algorithms were like, this group's really popular, let's keep showing more and more and more people. Uh, this party got into power and it led to um, widespread lynchings, so kind of people going and killing other people because they were different. Um, we all know about the Miramar case. I think we all know about the Miramar case with the um, extreme Buddhist monk that posted something that Facebook didn't moderate it. Facebook this week have just announced that they are going to now employ 100 moderators in Miramar. Okay, it's a nice start, but that's still not enough for the country. You know, there still needs to be more responsibility. We all know about the Cambridge Analytica scandal, selling all the data, Le Pen, Trump. Um, there's kind of, there's so much when you go through that Facebook is responsible for that we've not done anything about. So we need to make sure that we're working cross-sector to do this. Um, and a really, really nice positive example of a government proactively going out to uh, get these, these companies and civil society together is Tech Diplomacy, uh, which is a Danish, uh, the Danish ministry, their foreign ministry have um, now opened offices in San Francisco and in China to work with big organizations to go and sit in there, to go and have meetings with them, to learn about the new technologies and how they can be used in foreign policy and how they can work in the really positive stuff that these big corporations have developed into the structures of democracy and how they can look at implementing what their citizens want so they also take the knowledge from the big companies and go and do community workshops um, and go and sit and kind of see what their people actually want. And the two of us were in Copenhagen um, a couple of months ago and we hosted a, a workshop about trusting government. And uh, we opened it up and said, okay, so how many people here trust their government? And normally in a room, people are like, I don't really trust my government. They kind of do their own thing. In this room, all of the Danish people went, yeah, I trust my government. And it was kind of this real shock to us because then it meant, I mean, it meant the rest of the workshop, we had to adapt a bit. But, um, but people there kind of really trust their government because they can see that the government is proactively trying to weave private sector knowledge in with what they have to say. And it's a really important thing. Um, the third point that I wanted to touch on is that we, we need to be 
educating society more broadly and we need to be experimenting with technology and Eloise is going to talk to you about that rather than me doing a, a monologue for the <laughs> foreseeable future. Can I steal your... Thank you. Thank you. Um, just so you see my face, because voilà. um, hi. So I'm Eloise. I'm working with Emily. Uh, I'm more on the training part. So basically, we have a platform that we uh, engage cities on to involve their citizens, and the part that I'm responsible of is training the cities. So training the civil servants, and then training the citizens to understand what is expecting from them. Because basically you do participate in a democracy when you understand what is expected from you and what you can actually provide to the country or the city or whichever level you're included in. Um, and I want to talk about several topics that are like, that could be very theoretical. Um, like the fact that it's, uh, harder and harder for us to debate in a positive way of like understanding that your position is a good position, but can be challenged without challenging your ego. And another thing is that we have to reorganize the way we um, think about critical thinking. How do I challenge the things that are put in front of my brain? Because as Emily said, it's true that 60% of the ads we see, for example, are directed by one company, even if the content is not moderated by them. Um, so I just want to give, like, uh, as, a, as a positive spin of it, uh, a few examples of uh, companies that use technology uh, and like not only companies but also private like public sector to uh, using this technology to actually enforce critical thinking and positive non-challenging debating structure I feel I'm just turning my head up and die. I'm really sorry for all of you. <laughs> um, so just one example uh, that I really like, um, and it's in school, and you might think it's not exactly bound to democracy. It's actually an excellent example of checking fact, uh, like fake news. Um, it's a teacher in uh, Nordrhein-Westfalen uh, who organized with a journalist workshops for children to be the detective of fake news. So they have a training uh, during the entire year of the class and they're given assignments to understand like what are the source of an article, um, how do I know that a picture has been uh, uh, modified or not, where do I find the first picture who has posted it and they get a little certificate for a detective of fake news uh, which is a very like very side uh, action, uh, but something that is definitely embedding within children also this question of critical thinking. Um, another example is um, now you have uh, plugins that do tell you when you install them on your browser uh, if the newspaper you're read reading the news on is either owned by somebody that uh, stated their political opinion openly. So you can kind of know the editorial like positioning of the newspaper, um, and or if the newspaper is actually listed into newspapers that are like fact uh, related, fact uh, checking, and so on and so forth. Uh, there's uh, several examples of that. I can give you the names afterwards if you like. Um, and then there's another example which I would uh, invite you to do. Um, it's uh, an initiative from both uh, Reuters and the IFP, so press-wise really related, or you can uh, try to check on your own if a picture has been modified or not, and where they track down where the picture has been made uh, using satellite data on uh, geographical eras. 
So you can actually go and check, like, can this have been taken uh, uh, in a like Turkish coastline, or is that impossible? Um, it's it's perfect, like it's particularly interesting because it was um, it's uh, it's an image that has been taken as an example uh, where you see people like up there uh, with water as if they're floating when other people are drowning, and it was like a Czech newspaper that has used this to explain that it was impossible that the people were actually drowning in the Mediterranean Sea because obviously it was fake because somebody like couldn't drown if somebody else was this up and actually it was a picture from a Greek documentary and the guy that is up there uh, in the water is actually a filming person so he has his underwater material underwater and so you can like go through the places to see like how can I challenge myself to think but the question with those tools is that you have to, first there's this question of like, you have to feel responsible and the responsibility is yours to go and check things. Like to not believe what you're being shown, but you actually consider that you're being shown things, so you're passive, and that you have to actively re-engage into questioning what you're being shown. Which is very unsettling because we, so we also tend to be in an ego-boosting society uh, which is not necessarily made for the common good, which is individualistic as such, which is positive, um, but where you are seldomly challenging your own thoughts and positioning, which leads also to very toxic debating structure. Uh, for example, what we what we do see in um, in our platform, so we have people literally engaging into topics uh, that are that can be very tricky, and um, they're actually willing to get challenged if they understand that they're in a safe space. And they do understand the questions that it be, that is being asked to them. Uh, I'll take an example that is a very, like, like ground to the earth uh, example. There was a rescheduling of school rhythm in France. If you don't have children, you will think very, <laughs> very dispassionating, but it's uh, full of passion. <laughs> um, and they structured it not as in an against or for two type of uh, rhythm in schools, but more in a, okay, what can we do to improve the life of children in the school? And that really despoisoned the debate because the question was set up not in a yes, no kind of format, but more of a like understanding the ecosystem you're working in and what is then your impression? What is the thing that you can add as your personal feeling or as our resources that you saw? to uh, engage into this debate, not as your ego boost of like, I think what I do is right, but more as a positive spin onto what you can bring to the future and future of your children. Um, it's, a, it's a lot of little technology tools that are pretty simple to use, um, but it's, uh, education is also the, the part where you're actually engaging with civil servants. So, so this is the job that uh, I'm doing. I, I literally go to cities and I'm, I'm training them on a digital tool for democracy, which is for them very frightening because they have been trained uh, as civil servants to like work under five years or four years terms uh, for a certain public policy. And now they're dealing with democracy or at least exchange with citizens on a constant basis. So it's not anymore a five-year kind of challenge, it's a day-to-day -day type of challenge. And for them, it's uh, especially unsettling. So it has to be also, we have to uh, consciously, as technologies in democracy, decrease the fear of what new technologies can bring to to citizenship, to democracy, not as as like, 
democracy, like technology, is not going to solve all the issues that they have. But we have to decrease the fear of the use of technology for for better purposes, knowing, of course, the challenge of it. So I would advise you to go a little bit through the different education system that you can have, leading you to more fact checking and like uh, honest debate, and then yeah, carry on with uh, with uh, technology and democracy. Cool. So that's probably enough from from us. So we want to give you a space to kind of come up and talk, either give comments, anything from your experience, any questions that you might have. Um, otherwise, we have some questions that we would like to pose to you. Does anyone kind of want to come up and, and jump in? Cool. Nope. Okay. <laughs> um, so, for uh, how many of you, how many of you work in? startups in the private sector in the public sector so does anyone work in the public sector does anyone work yeah it would be interesting i mean can i invite you up to ask you about your experience of technology yeah let's see if this microphone works so first of all kind of it'd be great to hear what sort of role it is you have within government and kind of what your experience of technology is in kind of working day to day yeah, hi, I'm Jens. I work at the Federal Press and Information Office here in Berlin um, in the Europe section. And uh, yes, I think we at this agency, we use technology quite a bit. So we have, of course, a Facebook account, a Twitter account and all these what we could call technology uh, driven information services, but now me personally, where I am working, um, the only technology I'm using is the content management system for our internet um, auftritt. And yeah, that's it. So I'm using Twitter on a personal basis too, but I'm not into more fancy stuff. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, how in touch are you every day with, with different tech? or not kind of every day, what, what do you see happening? How much of the private sector's development do you see? Are you connected with or are you kind of very siloed in what you're doing? It's kind of policy and focused on this or do you get a chance to go out and look at emerging technologies? Yeah, I think it's more receptive in a way, of course, um, because I think um, government, federal government is lagging behind, obviously, but also purposely or on purpose because... Um, uh, I think one of the main issues could be or is always the reflection about where to adopt something and when to start something. Uh, you all know about uh, the discussion, uh, is uh, Chancellor Merkel using Twitter or not? Uh, I think she's still the last G7, G8 leader not using Twitter, but it is a decision that um, has been made and that won't change at least when she's still Chancellor. So um, these questions always arise and are discussed. And it's not that because we don't use this or that platform that we don't talk about it using this or that platform. Because, but, but there is always discussions underneath and in the system. And, um, and sometimes um, these institutions just say it's, not, it's nothing for us. So, um, so there's more discussions than one can see outside, of course, but that doesn't mean that we see everything that's going on, of course. But I'm here and I, I, I look and I, I learn and so um, you can see that there, it's, it's a silo, of course, but it's a silo that is 
via the humans working there interested in things that, that are going on outside. How do you think that you could work to be more transparent? So obviously one of the big issues with, with trust is that people don't necessarily know what's going on all of the time. And by being more transparent, that's kind of half, halfway there. People can actually see what's happening within government and, and we humanize it. So like you say, it's kind of a bunch of very interested people working on making the world better and working to kind of build these structures for, for nations and for cities. And you're obviously all working on really cool stuff, but externally we don't always see that. And we see what happens in the media and we, we hear all of this negative stuff about politicians and civil servants and they're not trying and that's not true. Like you say, you're here today. So kind of what steps do you think you could take or would you like to take to, to kind of become more transparent and also to kind of help inform citizens of the work that's going on? I think that's a complicated question for um, someone in, in, in federal government because I think, as you mentioned before, um, there is a difference between local government and, and, and government on, on, on a different level or on the federal level. There is still some issues of secrecy, um, state secrets, um, not necessarily where I work, but if you look at questions that the public and I include the media are asking um, these questions um, very quickly um, tend to um, touch on something that is interesting for them for obvious reasons but for other reasons that can be valid but maybe are not always valid um, um, uh, the state the government considers to be a secret uh, because it's often it's just more convenient to have something under the blanket and not talk about it and it's a question of attitude of course also because um, uh, public servants are it's easier to work if you don't have to show what your thinking was which papers you have produced and where um, your thoughts are coming from so it, it, it if you want to change this you maybe you can restrict more this area of secrecy but I'm totally convinced that there has to be some core um, secrecy in, in, in governing, in, in decision-making, because otherwise, if everything is on the open table, um, it in my opinion, it won't work anymore, at least at the federal level. Um, so, But to organize or reshape this area of secrecy, that is something that has to be discussed, yes, I agree. Do you think there are ways... Oh. And then we'll share with you, uh, uh, kind of very interesting, about accountability and saying that people don't necessarily want to show what they're doing. So obviously, I agree there are some things that should be kept state secret level, but are there ways that we can track accountability that kind of makes things transparent for the rest of us, that we can see that the work is being done for good reason and that there's purpose behind it and then there will be impact and kind of ripple effects from it, but we're not telling you exactly what it is, but there's still accountability so that we still can kind of trust what our governments are doing is for our, our benefit? I think um, that at least if you if it, if you look at the last I don't know 10 years or, or so in Europe when um, we had uh, some financial crisis and and uh, governance uh, governments in in other countries I, I won't name any were not working um, maybe as what we wished they could have been working um, preventing crisis, um, we always 
we, we can all, even in, in German newspapers and all, also in German tabloid newspapers, there is um, still sometimes you can read, oh, it's good to have a working and a functioning government with um, uh, people that do their jobs and um, just know what they're doing. And that is something that has a value per se, I would say, uh, even if there's always this discussion about, oh, Beamte didn't get too much money and all the perks and all this. But still, um, there is um, uh, lots of advantages to have a working, functioning government and the trade-off where you intrude, because that's how public servants could see it, where you intrude in, inside their little world, um, why and how they make their decisions, which are just a little parenthesis, um, always, which you can always challenge in court in Germany. So it's not as if everything that is done by a German administration is in a closed shop and then that's it. So, but still, um, I think the personal feeling of lots of people is, okay, let me do my job, I do it the best I can, I'm not hurting anybody, I'm just doing it as the law wants me to do it, and that's it. And so it's, it's, it's a very personal question sometimes. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, hi. Um, <laughs> my name is uh, Sebastian. I'm from uh, DM25, Democracy in Europe Movement. Mm -hmm. And uh, I heard uh, a lot uh, in these two days uh, the topic of trust. People don't trust in, in the government anymore. And um, uh, my question is, is that really the, the result of uh, not being able to participate? Or is it maybe just because uh, the governments did a shitty job all these years? <laughs> so uh, doing a specific policy, which is uh, which only the rich people basically benefit from it. And so uh, if politician, politicians keep doing that, um, it's natural that people say, well, what, what can I hope from this government, even if, if I participate or not? I mean, it's, not, it's going in this direction, and it is keep, it's going in this direction since, since the last 30, 40 years, basically. So... Um, the question is, is there, can there be a technological uh, solution to this problem? Um, yeah, on this question, I, I think it's a super interesting question because it's a little bit the, the egg and the chicken type of question. Like, there was trust loss based on work of politicians. Not all politicians, not all civil servants, and not all population distrust governments as well. Um, I think also sometimes we talk about trust um, with like it's difficult to make the difference between how many people distrust their government and how many people are dissatisfied but don't have another option or like the facility of distrusting or what I call it is that it's easier to say like oh I don't want to get engaged with this because I distrust that anything will happen because you've been like cheating in the past or like you don't want to involve anymore and the part where you actually have had a government not keeping their promises uh, and then how do you do to to re-engage the people uh, there are a few technologies that actually help you to follow on program of uh, politicians what has been done in their programs so it like it's a it's a little visual design where you have a lot of dots with different like categories like economy school um 
everything you have to do as a government, <laughs> I'm at a loss now, environment and so on and so forth. And you see the dots lighten up um, as the promises made during the campaign are uh, actually achieved. So this is a possibility, but of course it's again the question of like, do the people who distrust the government have access to this technology that would help them regain the trust? And the issue is that oftentimes there are a lot of things made to to re-engage citizens and to link them again to politicians, but that are not accessible or made accessible or that the people don't feel the responsibility of going to and read through. Uh, so it's also the question of like, how do we make accessible technologies that would help bridging this gap between the citizens and the politicians, from my opinion. And just, yeah, a quick point on maybe the systems that we have are just kind of flawed, but uh, that's a bigger question about <laughs> capitalism and consumerism. But I think if we start doing this kind of cross-sector collaboration and we start holding governments to be more accountable, then we can start working together to build the systems that we want to have in place so that it doesn't just serve people that have a lot of money or people that kind of come from a very specific background. And kind of by trying to involve more people in the discussion when we, when we build these structures will help us build systems that can be more future-proof rather than just working for now and for the people that are immediately in power. And then kind of there's that question that when we go out and we reach out to all of these people, we have to have diversity, we have to have people from kind of high income brackets and also the lowest income brackets to kind of come and have open debate and open discussion um, and talk about what would work for them, what wouldn't work for them, what they like, and just have a very open, honest discussion um, and then kind of go away and build structures that can be as inclusive as they possibly can and kind of take into opinion everything that is going on rather than just having the same group of people from the same schools having the same conversations about the same topics. And so then it's kind of a question about making sure that we are diversifying the kind of collaboration and the cross-sector accountability that we have. There's been a huge story uh, the last years about the Armutsbericht in Germany and the government hired scientists to figure out if people are represented by the government or not in their uh, decision making of the government and they found out that especially the poorer part of the population is absolutely not represented and the scandal of this story was that the government deleted the parts of the findings of these scientists where they said exactly that so uh, they know that but they don't want people to know and there have been other studies like that uh, in, over the last decades in the US, there are many, if you look like uh, studies about democracy, they say the decision making of the politicians is always uh, geared towards what the wealthy elites of these country wants. And it doesn't really matter what the poor people of this country want. So I think that, that as an answer to that question, there was before. And therefore, people are, of course, dissatisfied. And then now we have these possibilities with technology to exchange opinions and do all these things. And it's quite chaotic because it's very new. And you mentioned this thing of uh, fake news and hate speech before. And I found a very interesting study was called the Internet Political Polarization and the 2016 election. Because there's this idea that Trump was elected because of fake news. And what these people found out was that people who have had Internet access since a long time were less likely to vote for Donald Trump, actually. And also that people who have Internet access since a long time had more moderate political views. So the phenomenon that you said what happened in India, that there was uh, lynch mobs and these things, looks like a short-term effect to me of uh, when people have access to this technology because they don't know how to use it, but in the long term it's actually beneficial if you just let information flow freely, the good, the bad and the ugly. 
And uh, whereas if you would say you would censor it, hate speech and fake news, you're giving the power to censor properly to the same people who don't represent the people anyways already. And you think you might have some short-term benefit? I don't think so. And the long-term benefit is certainly censorship. <laughs> I think, yeah, no, no, I completely agree with you. And I think with very often with this stuff, it all goes back to education um, and to kind of arming our young people with the skills and the information that they can use to think critically about it. I mean, I don't know about you guys. How many of you got taught about politics at school? Okay, well, that's far more far higher than I expected. But kind of the very often we're, we're taught about kind of the political system, the way that it works, the way that we go out and vote, but we, it doesn't go much deeper. And it's kind of always this big, scary topic that's, you know, it's really hard to get into. It's never like the sexy subject at school. You know, all the cool kids do music. You don't go and sit and study politics, you know, if you want to have good street cred. And it's kind of this heavy topic that's very, very, very complicated. And we don't teach it in a way that allows people to kind of really engage with it. And it's the same kind of we need to arm people with the skills to be able to understand politics, how it works, how democracy works. When you turn 16, you need to be armed with the knowledge to go out and do it. And technology is a really great tool for giving people knowledge. And being able to go out there and say, I can read an article from this part of the world and they look at things differently to me. And in, in Australia, they run democratic things like this and I really like this part of it. And, oh, I'd really like to share that for my government so I can use technology to write them an email or post something on Facebook and we can use it as a really, really powerful tool, but it's about giving people the knowledge that they are able to do it and saying, like you were saying, kind of at the moment there's a lot of elites and it, politics is seen as serving kind of the, the, those people. But if we arm people when they're younger with the knowledge and the, the, the kind of infrastructure to, to use it in the same way, then it will be beneficial. But we're not doing that at school at the moment. The curriculum's kind of very stuck in the past and so we need to think about kind of starting from the education system building in ways of thinking about politics and democracy and also thinking about fake news and information and like Eloise was mentioning the different initiatives to teach kids how to think about these different things so that when they see these kind of hate speech things come up on on technology they can go right this isn't something that I want to engage with for this this and this reason because I know that that's negative for this reason and I'm going to use technology to combat that instead. Yeah, sorry, just one point, sorry. Um, I, I like what you say about it's chaotic because it's new. Uh, I think it's very true in the sense that n it's true that it's new to have the, to feel empowered that you, you can say anything you want in some ways. Um, and like, well, I'm French. The first thing we do about anything is to complain. And I think it's the feeling for a lot of people, you know, like you go out and you want to complain. You don't want to constructively work on something. But then after a little bit of complaining, you realize that actually it's not going anywhere and you want to organize a little bit better and then you do the things that you do. But in order to do that, you have to be extracted from the bubble that you're in because if the bubble you're in is strictly complaining or trashing or hate speeching or whatever the, the word in ing doing that, like it's difficult to actually constructively engage. So it's chaotic because it's new so far. It could It could very much stay chaotic even if it's not new anymore just because we can create silos within the knowledge of people and and that's that's why we have to like also adapt fast yes yeah, sorry you it just doesn't look like this is what's happening that's what this other study showed that over the long term people become more moderate through all of this um, process so you don't have this model is actually working you don't have to come with heavy-handed censorship or uh, like this you have to of course educate people but you don't have to have it through heavy-handed regulation and 
this one. Yeah, I think I got it. Um, yeah, there's a lot of, I want to comment, so I'm afraid of sounding a little messy. Uh, I, I love that study, and I really want that study to argue against my friends who want to censor everything because technology is evil, and uh, you know, without censorship, what will we do? But, um, you know, this discussion, as you started it, it uh, always makes me feel a little bit, um, how do you put it, um, not very hopeful, because um, a lot of the changes that you propose, uh, it's what we said before, the problem stems from, you know, you, I like that you mentioned capitalism and so on, because what will we do about that? Um, uh, and then you mentioned that, you know, we see a lot of good initiatives like in Reykjavik and so on, uh, and it makes me think back to a lot of things that, um, you know, these, like having situations and communities where you feel represented and connected, they usually work when you're in a small community. Reykjavik is tiny. Iceland is tiny. I mean, I love that they put their bankers in prison. I, I mean, I'm, com I'm from Portugal, 10 million people, it's not a lot. <sighs> Fuck's sake, yeah, I would love if anyone went to jail. I think someone went to jail for doing corruption with sardines. That's, that's what we get. The guys that actually did millions of... Anyway, that's another story. Um, so, so yeah, like I said, there's a lot of things in my mind sparked by this. I also wanted to... Yeah, I thought about... Uh, yeah, all the the communities thing that you said that you know that you feel connected to Berlin uh, you feel connected to your community back home it's it goes back to you know the notion of belonging to one place is changing completely and we need technology to adapt to that and I would like to know if you have any like more solu technological solutions which help with this because because it's a challenge and and one bigger point on that especially from I've just been in Berlin for for a few months and it's reminded me that when you live in a big city, uh, your problem becomes managing time. And this goes back to the whole uh, Greek democracy, which is the people who could participate in democracy were also the ones who had the time for it. And unless you know, we go to this model of universal basic income and, you know, and people don't need to work and can work on democracy, yeah, which involves a lot of changes and involves, again, like solving the economic situation where we are, before we actually solve democracy. And so I thought about all this, and I actually <laughs> wanted to make a simpler question, which is, um, um, you know, let's say that, um, you know, forget all that, we're screwed, uh, we're gonna go into probably like, nations are gonna fail, and we're gonna go into corporate utopias, you know, like Facebook and Google are gonna be the only companies that they're gonna run our lives. Um, Okay, so let, now let's take a step back and think maybe one thing that uh, we could be working on and like you guys should be working on uh, is um, helping to put you know, technological solutions but also the culture of more democracy in all organizations, not just public and so on. So yeah, so I would love to hear what you think and what you've done and so on. You know, if you get my logic, like all yes. organizations should be democratic, right? Yeah, no, so, yeah. it's great. Um, it's, it's several, it's, several of the topics are great. Uh, I, I'm, yeah. a, Sorry, I'm, I'm a very fan of the tam, time, like uh, the time that we dedicate to common good, whereas like depending on the time that we spend on like individual things and as well as jobs and so on and so forth. But like on just on the on the question of what kind of uh, work we actually did that could answer in some tiny way to this question of like communities and the communities we belong to beyond borders, uh, like cross sectors, is um, one one thing thing that we're working with uh, is called Friends of Europe, 
So they work solely on security issues, mostly on security issues, but uh, broadly. So um, it's not a city, it's not a, a community per se, except that it's a community of uh, thinkers and doers. So like NATO, the UN, uh, the GIZ, this kind of people. Um, and they wanted to engage with civil society as well as their university people, uh, their other think tanks uh, involved on a two-day like live debate on like what were the most pressing issues in terms of security, like cybersecurity, uh, ad hoc terrorism, this kind of thinking. And so that was one example on at least our platform where like broaden communities were working so like it was communities by topic of interest and not community by localization the, for now I, I feel the biggest issue that we have is that we have a lot of people here who share interest um, if it's uh, climate change or if it's uh, education as a whole or poverty or whatever like it's not really relevant to the country like we'll have different sensibilities towards the country but it's really the language you're you're talking in uh, and like very like the language the, the like the fact that we're speaking English right now doesn't help us to create a constructive debate because I'm I'm prevented from fully expressing how I feel and and for me that's a, a real issue because like we are building those super communities of uh, people living in cities and living on the side a lot of people that are living not in major cities um, and so like it's a little bit like San Francisco saying like or a lot of cities saying, no, we're going to continue to abide by the climate change uh, COP21 uh, uh, signing contract because we believe in it. And then it's it's creating this micro-nation type of thinking. So the only thing I can see ourselves doing is, of course, promoting more democratic systems within organization. But I think that's de facto happening also because our people are more getting engaged into that. And then it's like, how do we make sure that we debate in safe spaces around same topic of activities? And then again, the language is in between, because even if we have exceptional AI language tools, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. So. Yeah, and I think another another thing that we can be doing um, is we kind of we give politicians and civil servants a lot of bad press, but we should be kind of, I think we can use technology a lot to help connect them um, and to give them a platform and a safe space to kind of share ideas on because they are trying to experiment with technology just as much as the rest of us. You know, nobody really knows what the applications of it all can be and we kind of need it to be perfect going into democracy, but there should be kind of more safe spaces for, for people to experiment with how we can use technologies for creating democratic processes and whether or not we kind of we experiment on a small city basis and then they feed back to a wider community like okay today we tried using artificial intelligence or sensors to improve the traffic flow and we found this worked this worked this didn't work this didn't work and then kind of connecting those ideas so that different civil servants aren't working in silos and aren't re replicating the problem so i think kind of again the language barrier kind of comes up and maybe we should we're going to have to work kind of on national levels to do it, but kind of thinking, okay, well, let's have like a national technological government experimental facility for people to kind of go and try these things out. And then that's also kind of nice PR. So civil society can see like, okay, my government actually wants to try doing this cool stuff. I can go to their innovation lab and I can see that they're working on analyzing big data sets and they want to do it like this. And then kind of we could go in kind of as civil society or experts in our own field and kind of give inputs to it, but it gives it, the civil servants space to be able to 
experiment and it connects them all to be able to share best practices and not replicate failures and kind of share successes that hopefully will help them build and then that kind of helps on that community level that then hopefully scales up more nationally and then maybe you can have organizations that share cross country but yeah that's my thought sounds very much like decentralization to me what is the topic of uh, this conference and uh, i think this is the way to democratize the the uh, society uh, there's a also study about this from 2009 from Elena Oskov. She was the first woman to win the Nobel Prize in economics and her work was about decentralization of uh, governance and how that leads to uh, advancements in all these fields. So you don't have to go through these like federal decision makers mm -hmm. uh, necessarily but the task is more how to decentralize the decision making of, of the government, how to uh, not, not just give them more space but how to move all of this more to the local level and uh, Mm. That's what I thought is uh, the central theme of all of this year. Yeah. Yeah. No, agreed. And I think, yeah, there's this huge movement back towards kind of towards city communities and the way that we do that. Um, but I think, yeah, it's it's interesting because I think we do still need these representatives and I, I'm so for communities, but I think we still do need to remember that we need experts and we need political experts because we're not all trained in politics. We don't know the ins and outs of the economic situation and the kind of the way that the federal government works. So I think it's about, yes, decentralizing things, giving more power to more organizations, but also remembering that we still need these figureheads. And, and I think an example that I always try and give is I wouldn't want to do brain surgery on someone in the same way that I think my politician needs to make some decisions on my behalf that because I'm not educated in it. So I think it's about remembering to give power to the people that need to have power, also why holding them accountable, also why trying to give as much positive impact and positive knowledge as we can and just sharing as much as we can. Decentralizing kind of some power structures and also remembering that we should trust our government in other ways and giving the them the opportunity to kind of go out and perform. Um, does anyone else have any questions? Because I think we have been told we need to wrap up now. I would like to just add mm -hmm. one last thing to that. Like if you look, for example, at the central plant economy where you have one company who builds the cars, and of course I can't build a car and I wouldn't want anybody to mm. buy my car. But what I want is have different opportunities to, to buy from different companies. And that will be the same with, with the governance. So I don't have to wait for years to wait for them. But it's more like a, a service uh, who provides a service. I kind of uh, buy, buy the service. You can even, I don't, I don't mind uh, doing this with, with money rather than with my votes or any, anything that's more flexible. Mm. Uh, it, it, mm. If it, it, seeing it as a service that, that is a service like anything else governance is buying a cell phone is buying a car is buying all these things and what I want is different options to choose from so then all, all the ones who can offer me any solutions for this they have an incentive to be smart in this I don't have to be the brain surgeon but I can offer between uh, choose between different ones okay last point and then we'll wrap up <laughs> just to say about that um, the good thing about services is that you can choose them governments you can't choose them Which, you know, maybe that's something to change. Anyway, that's the anarchist yeah, of the that's day. That's a nice cheery point to end on. Um, <laughs> we can, we vote, that's what we're meant to do. Um, and if we don't like the politicians, then let's go on and we'll stand to be MPs. Last point. But like I said, I think we need to be working more community level based. We all need to be responsible for democracy and for building better futures. And in whatever way we can, we need to be proactive in going out and building get better governments, it, whether that is constructively debating with somebody that has a difficult a different political view to you and kind of considering their opinion or going out and sharing your expertise with policymakers to kind of help them make better decisions and help them grow and develop in their own right and also helping educate people 
who don't necessarily have the same access to information that we have. Um, but yeah, thank you so much everybody for joining us. Um, if you have any questions, please feel free to come and bother us at any point. We'll hang around for a little bit afterwards, but otherwise, thank you so much. Um, and I just want to say, applaud all of you for your, your insights and your attention. So thank you so much.